Welcome to the Factory Youth Podcast. This is a weekly teaching podcast from the Factory Youth at Calvary Chapel, Vera Beach. Um, I'm reading from the NIV tonight. The last few weeks I've been all over the place in translations, okay? So if you're familiar with our church, we're usually New King James. I've been mostly ESV for the last year or so. Tonight, NIV, okay? So there we are. Um, 24, a silversmith named Demetrius, everyone say Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. That's actually pretty cool. He says, Led astray people in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. Our whole area, our whole country, our whole is is being led astray from worshiping uh, this false goddess Diana or Artemis. We'll talk about her in a moment. Uh, the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. You're like, huh? He, gods made by human hands are not God. Paul's saying this. Can you believe it? There's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon, the whole city was in an uproar. Uh, I lost my train of thought, my spot. Uh, what verse? 29, soon the whole city will be in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them were rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Have you guys seen Anchorman? I don't know what we're yelling about. Like, that's the scene. Um, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. They're just shouting. I don't know what we're yelling about. They're mad. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted in unison for about two hours. Listen, this is what they shouted for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. He's like trying to like, <laughs> I'm trying to say something. For two hours they're shouting. The city clerk finally quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and they're proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we'd not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he said this, he dismissed the assembly. 
All right, here's the first thought tonight. We'll kind of unpack what we just read. But the gospel, the message of Jesus, brings confrontation and disruption. The gospel, the message of Jesus, brings confrontation and disruption. Okay, the context of the time in Ephesus is Paul preaches, people get saved, a church starts in a school, and God does unusual miracles by the hand of Paul, and people leave their old lives behind and begin to follow Jesus. Radically, people are turning from their old lifestyle and they're beginning to follow after the way and life of Jesus, which is a life of love and enemy love and self-sacrifice and humility and surrender to the plans and will of God. So they're turning to this life found in following Jesus. But now we're told the gospel is disrupting the people's way of living and it leads to confrontation. Mainly in this, we're told the silversmith or this craftsman um, was upset because his business was suffering as a result of people turning to Jesus. Now, Ephesus had a temple to a goddess named Artemis or Diana. Um, And this temple, I have an image of it if we could throw that up. This image was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is the theater in which they're talking about. So there's, there's thousands of people in this place worshiping, actually the theater is something else. This is the temple. Never mind. Um, this is the temple that they would have gone to worship this Diana. Now, the guy, uh, Demetrius, who is our silversmith, you can leave that up for a moment. Um, but he, his job was he would be outside this temple and he would make little sort of shrines to the goddess Diana. And what you would do is people from all over would make their pilgrimage to Ephesus to go to this wonder of the world. And they would purchase from Demetrius or one of his fellow craftsmen a little shrine. They would then take it up to the temple and some prophet for the goddess Demetrius would basically pronounce a blessing or something over this little shrine. And then you would go worship this goddess Diana in this temple. So this guy, he was saying, like, we, we made money, bro. That's what he says. Not exactly, but something like that. He's like, you know, like, we have, we have made a, a living wage, a good wage off of selling these trinkets to these people, taking advantage of people's beliefs and ideas about God and the afterlife and things like that. And so they're coming into Ephesus. They're buying these trinkets from Demetrius and his friends, and then they're going to worship this goddess Diana. People, but the gospel had come in, the message of Jesus had come in and confronted and transformed people's lives. And now they're leaving behind their old worship. Demetrius is sitting there and he's like, man, it is, it is Friday. Like by now I've had so many sales. Where is everybody? Like what's going on? He asks his friends like, have you noticed like sales have been down lately? Like man, like. Diana needs better PR, like we need like to do like a, like an Instagram boost, like a promotion post, like let people know like, hey, the temple's still open, you can come, come worship Diana. They notice like, this is very strange, but the reason, as they find out, is that Paul and the message of Jesus was transforming people's lives, and they're literally turning from their old life. No longer are they worshiping this false goddess, they're actually worshiping Jesus. Now, the context of Roman worship is very interesting. Rome practiced pantheism. Um, Pantheism was the worship of many gods, or more specifically, everything as God. 
So the Romans, um, their culture was built on, one commentator said, uh, violence and tolerance. So they would come into an area, they would, they would take over violently, and then they would say, you can worship whatever you want as God. We're cool with it as long as you also worship Caesar. Just add that. And so they worship what, what, what is called pantheism, where everything is God. And it was a culture of tolerance, of relative truth, and everything as God. And early Christians, the followers of Jesus, or the way, like we read about here in Acts 19, early on were not considered religious. In fact, early Christians were considered atheists. And the reason for that was because they worshipped one God rather than everything as God. And so the, the message of Jesus really confronted the culture that they lived in because at that time, everything was God. If you wanted to worship a butterfly, worship a butterfly. If you want to worship this little thing that that guy down the street made for you, worship it. Go for it. If you want to worship the sun, the moon, the stars, anything, go for it. And then the message of Jesus comes in and it's like, sorry, dude, your little wooden trinket that you bought from the dollar store is not God. I hate to break it to you. There is a God. He, he is, a, he is a, a, a living and powerful God who came to earth, who lived a perfect life, who died a sinner's death, but rose again three days later. He's God, and he wants to know you. That's the message of Jesus. And all of a sudden, people are like, are you serious? I could throw away this little wooden statue? I'm like, yeah, man, get rid of it. And they're beginning to worship God. But originally, people thought, man, these guys are crazy. They, they must not believe in a God if they're not worshiping everything as God. So that's sort of the context that we have here in Acts 19. And the gospel confronted and disrupted that way of living. Listen, we live in a very similar culture. You can believe whatever you want, practice whatever you want, and do whatever you want. But as soon as you're a Christian, it's not okay. Right? Worship anything. You, you Live however you want. Talk about whatever. Date whoever, whatever. It doesn't matter. But as soon as you identify as a Christian, that's not okay. You are a bigot or intolerant or evil or racist or homophobic or whatever it is in the culture that we live in. When I was in high school, being a Christian was just considered weird. At, like at best, if you're a Christian, you're like, yeah, you're just kind of weird. Nowadays, the culture that we live in, Christianity is considered dangerous. It's dangerous because it confronts the world system that we're living in. The culture that, that everything is moving towards, the gospel message stands, quite frankly, in opposition to that. Because it's so disruptive to the world that we live in. The message of Jesus is the most countercultural, disruptive, and confrontational message of our day and age. In a world where everything can be God, we're saying there's one God. When all roads lead to heaven, we believe that there is one way, one truth, and one life, and no one goes to the Father except through Jesus. Where every sexual ethic is okay, we believe that there is a way God honors sexuality. Where tolerance is the most loving way to live, we believe that the truth will set you free. 
And so we're living in a, a cultural moment where Christianity is so disruptive and com- com- confrontational to the culture in which we live in. If you identify as a follower of Jesus, you are as rebellious as it comes. Because the whole world and flow of culture is going a direction. And as soon as you say, I am a follower of Jesus, you are now turning your back on a cultural flow. You're saying, I am no longer going to live in the status quo, in the norms of life, and in the direction where this is all headed. I am choosing a different path. And it's rebellious. It's confrontational. It is disruptive. And listen, to be a church on fire means we are willing to accept the life of an outcast and be willing to live bold regardless of what that may lead to. When you say, I am a follower of Jesus, you are saying, I am willingly choosing the life of an outcast. I am willingly choosing the life of a rebel. I'm willingly choosing the life of somebody that is not okay with where the culture and where life is heading, but I believe that there's a better way. This is the way of Jesus, who through his life and message was not accepted and loved. In fact, he was murdered. Right? This is the way of Jesus. Fuck, I'm just trying to be like Jesus. Awesome. Well, get ready to be killed. (laughs) This is the life of the Apostle Paul. Who from here in this, in this chapter, if you continue through the story, we're going to see more riots and arrests. He's going to face persecution and abandonment. He will be shipwrecked, bitten by a deadly snake, and stuck on an island for three months. He will be beaten, falsely tried, arrested, and ultimately lose his life as a result of being a follower of Jesus. A church on fire... A follower of Jesus does not mean life is going to go great, life is going to go easy, life is going to go right. The reality is we have a disruptive message. But we believe, let me say this, we believe that the message of the gospel, the hope that we can have in in Jesus is the life that will bring out human flourishing that will bring out purpose, that will bring out identity, that will bring out more joy than we could possibly find anywhere else. We don't preach this message because we think we're better than or holier than or anything like that. We believe that this is the message the world aches for. And that all of this, whatever that's going on, do whatever you want, feel however you want, love whoever you want, however that is, we're actually believing that that is not what creates human flourishing. That it's actually in the life of Jesus, in the way of Jesus, that creates the best life. All right, point number two. The gospel is worth it. The gospel is disruptive. It is confrontational. It makes you, you are choosing the life of a rebel and the outcast. But it's worth it. This is the point we must all come to. Regardless of what it leads me to in this life, following Jesus, trusting him, and living for him will always be worth it. Now, although there's great pain ahead for Paul and the followers of Jesus, they will endure and God will be glorified. We see good on a macro level. I'm going to break down a few good things that happen in the rest of the book of Acts and what we've seen so far. Churches start. Uh, In fact, they estimate at least 14 churches started by Paul, including Iconium, Corinth, 
Philippi, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Malta, and more, many of which we get books of the Bible out of, right? Corinth, Corinthians, we get Galatians, church in Galatia, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all written to churches, um, most of which were we see uh, started in the book of Acts, and then some of them later on that aren't followed in the book of Acts. So churches start. We see amazing men and women of God used in powerful ways. We meet characters like Paul, Barnabas, Silas, uh, Timothy, Aquila and Priscilla, Apollos, Luke, Philip, Philip's unnamed daughters. The list goes on, on and on of these amazing men and women that God used in tremendous ways. And as a result of them preaching this disruptive confrontational message, the gospel goes all over the world and transforms the world as we know it. Three different continents receive the gospel, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Countless countries, including Israel, Syria, Galatia, Turkey, Greece, Rome, Ethiopia, Babylon, and Spain. The gospel expands despite barriers of geography, ethnicity, culture, gender, and wealth. The gospel continues to go on, and it transforms communities. Did you know that you can go to Ephesus today, and you can visit some of the ruins of the Temple of Diana, and also the theater in which they gathered? And do you know who the primary uh, uh, the primary consumer of traveling there is? It's Christians. Christians go there. Why? To read about what they read about in the book of Acts. It's not people to worship Diana. Like the people that worship Diana are long gone. I love, I love that end of this. He's like, hey, Diana will be fine. We just, we just don't want to get in trouble today. She's, she's, you know, she's great. She's awesome. She'll be good. Don't worry about it. Like everything's good. These guys will be gone. Diana will live on forever. You know, the followers of Jesus are the ones going to visit to say like, oh, that's cool. All right, now where? Right, because, because that stuff, the, God, the message of Jesus, the hope for humanity, the hope of the world, the, the way, the truth, and the life that is the person in relationship of Jesus is the message that transcends time and culture, not the message of the day. Where the, the cultural norm, the message of the day in, in Ephesus in the first century when Paul was there was not was in complete opposition to the message of Jesus. And what outlasted? The message of Jesus. So here we are today in another cultural moment where, where the gospel is, is confronting and disrupting the culture that we live in. And based upon history alone, okay, based upon the church history alone, what's going to outlast? What's going to outlast? The, the, Jesus said that the church will prevail, the church will continue to stand, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. That God is going to build his church, and nothing's going to withstand that. The gospel goes on. And not only, my, my last thought on uh, the macro level of change, we also see social constructs change. Um, primarily through the gospel, through the treatment of women and children. Without the message of Jesus, the thought of uh, equality and things like that does not exist. 
and when the, when the gospel showed up, it would transform a community. One of the things that was so beautiful about the gospel, and especially the church of Jesus, is that regardless of race, gender, age, you could come, and we all were under one roof in the church. That was not the cultural norm at the time. The cultural norm was not that. The message of Jesus came in, and it didn't matter where you came from, what you looked like, or who you were. Come on in. We're all equal here. We all have a seat at the table because of Christ. It's amazing. Social constructs, as we know it, the world that we live in today is a result of the message of Jesus. But we also see good, not just on a macro level, but on the micro level. We see lives changed, individuals changed, homes changed. We see sick people healed. We see individuals are given identity and purpose. People enter into relationship with their heavenly father who knows them and loves them. We are called to be a church on fire. And that that calling is to take it beyond the four walls of a building and into a world that needs it. And let me, as, as we sort of conclude the book of Acts and worship team, you guys can make your way up here. The, that as we, as we go out into the world, recognize that you are choosing the life of the outcast and your message is disruptive. Okay? So if you share like, hey, this is what I believe because of, of the message that I have. And people are offended or people are, are turned off or put off or, or people are, 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 are worried or something like that. Know that, that it's, it's just kind of what happens. But also, let me tell you that the gospel is good news. And the, and the reality is, is where, where people, people are often afraid of the unknown. They, they, they get used to this insulated culture that we live in where everybody's saying the same thing. And then we, are, we set forth something new and it's, it's intimidating a little bit. What is that? What is this message? What are we talking about? But the message of Jesus is, is the hope for the world. It's what people need. Many of us can identify with the reality that we felt lost and alone and now we feel like we have family. Many of us know what it is to feel, to carry guilt and shame and burden and then walking in and hearing the message of Jesus and, and him releasing that from us and saying, you're loved just like you are. Many of us know the reality of feeling uh, just forgotten about at home or all we experience is fight and brokenness. And then we walk into the community of believers and it doesn't matter what our week has been like. We're loved and accepted. We sing songs about the grace and goodness of God because we've experienced it for ourselves. The message of Jesus, it's not an old message. It's not a dying message. It's not a hurtful message. It is the message that our world needs. And many of us have experienced that life. And now we are called, even deeper, we are commissioned to go out and bring that hope of the world to a dying culture that needs it. But you also need to know it's disruptive. <laughs> it's confrontational. It's different. It's hard at times. Paul, the Apostle Paul, would be the first to tell you it isn't always easy. As he is falsely accused here and later he's going to get beat up. He's going to get thrown into prison. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be forgotten about. He's going to die. He's going to be the first to say, like, it isn't easy. But it's worth it. 
And if I believe in a message that transforms my soul and my life, how willing should I be to go out into a world, even if that means losing friends, even if that means awkward conversation, even if that means difficulty, knowing that this is the hope, this is the life that everybody needs. I want to read to you a quote as we close. This is a, from um, a famous magician uh, named Penn Gillette. And uh, he was famous as a, a magician group called Penn and Teller. Your parents probably know who that is. Um, but he was an atheist. And uh, he said this quote that I'm going to read after a Christian shared their faith with him. A Christian sort of put themselves out there and shared the faith um, with him and somebody afterwards said like doesn't that just make you so mad when people do that um, because you're an atheist and listen to his quote it'll be on the screen quote I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize proselytize basically means like it's a non-christian words of evangelize or, or it's more of a, a schemey word like market or salesman right Think, think salesman, think door to door. A guy came to my house today, I didn't answer it because I hate, I'm scared of people knocking on my door. But a guy knocked on our door today to sell me like, who knows, security cameras or something, I don't know. Um, that's the idea, proselytize. But he says this, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that that's not really worth telling them and it's not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much, listen, do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. That's a pow that is a powerful quote. What he is saying is that if we truly believe the gospel, if we truly believe that there is life to be found in Jesus, we will share it regardless of what that leads to. If it leads us to loss of friends, it's worth it. If it leads to being abandoned, it's worth it. If it leads to prison, it's worth it. If it means that we're considered this or blamed for that or hated because of this, it's worth it because we recognize, listen, there is life in Jesus, that he is what we need. And if we truly believe that message, listen to me, that disruptive, confrontational, but beautiful and complete and hopeful message that is the life that is found in Jesus, we're going to be people that not only share it, but live it. Or we're going to be people that are set apart, that are saying, I'm going to follow after him, regardless of what that might lead me to. Because it's worth it, and there are people in my world that need to hear it. How many of us can think of friends or family members or siblings or, 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 or co-workers or classmates that we know that they are aching inside for a message like this? That you are loved, 
that God sees you, that he knows you, he's got a plan for you, there is life in him. How many of us know people like that? And here we are with the opportunity. It's almost as if, if I can use as dramatic language as he used, it's almost as if there's a truck barreling down on them and we have an option to either just, eh, it might be awkward. They might, not, uh, they might not like me afterwards. Or we have the option to tackle them and say, like, hey, no, there, there's life. There's life. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us, and the worship team's going to close us out.